You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All righty. What book of the Bible are we in? John's Gospel. You could say that for a year. We're going to take a whole year, roughly, and we're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of John, looking at the testimony of Jesus' best friend. If you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 6. And today we're going to look at one of the most beloved stories in the whole Bible, one that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels is actually the only miracle in addition to the resurrection of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'll start with a a story. So uh, Grace and I, we met in high school. We recently celebrated the 30th anniversary of our first date here recently. And uh, we, I, I got... I became a Christian in college. She grew up a pastor's daughter. And so she was accustomed to seeing God show up and provide in supernatural, miraculous ways. So her faith was very high. So she has spiritual gift of faith. That's why she found me interesting. Um, Just you have to have a lot of faith to think that a life with me would be worthwhile. So she has a gift of faith. But in addition to that, she saw God provide for her family in ministry. So so she'd seen this. I'm a new Christian when we get married. Her and I... We got married at the age of 21 between our junior and senior year of college. We're, we're in college, and I'm a brand new Christian. I'm learning and growing. And we got married, and we were brokeity broke, broke. College, college married broke, right? Our total income was significantly less than $1,000 a month. Our date night was 99-cent movie theater, and we would go to the laundromat because we didn't have a washer and dryer, and we would play board games, B-O-R-E-D, board games. And so we'd play board games. She liked them. I like her, so I played them. But we play board games, and we're just brokeity-broke, college-broke, on a very tight fixed budget, found a safe, cheap apartment, edge of town, middle of nowhere, up a hill, go around the backside of somebody's house. There's a little door. That's our place, $250 a month. That's our rent, and we can barely make it. We heat the thing with firewood because we can't afford to turn the electric heat on. We get married, and a bill shows up for a college debt. It was Grace's. She had it deferred. The paperwork somehow got messed up, and it came due. It was not my wife's fault. All the men repeat after me. It was not my wife's fault. Okay, just say it again. It is not my wife's fault. Just keep saying that for the rest of your life. And I just promise you, a lot of healing is going to come to your relationship. So it was not my wife's fault. She was a victim. But now the bill shows up, and every month we have an unexpected bill. Okay, and here we are, newly married couple. She's faith girl. I'm ulcer boy. Okay, literally, I've had two. So uh, I'm ulcer boy, and she's faith girl. She's like, we'll be fine. I'm like, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And so then we get ready to go to church. And my wife asked me, newly married couple, how much are we going to give to the Lord? I was like, he's fine. He is so fine. He's fine. He should give to us. We're in dire straits. She's like, no, Mark, we need to give to the Lord. We will. Uh, Once we graduate, get jobs, pay off our college debt and have margin, we will give to the Lord. She's like, no, no, no. You give first fruits. You give first and best. I was like, no, I don't have any fruit. And uh, if he wants fruit, I'll give him a grape. But that's all he's going to get out of me. So we're having a little negotiation. And, uh, and, and Faith Girl wants to give generously. And Ulcer Boy doesn't want to give anything. And so we had this little discussion. She said, no, no, no. The Lord is teaching you to trust him and to trust him with your stuff. Because you know what? It's, at least for me, maybe this is true of you, it's a lot easier for me to give Jesus my sin than my stuff. Right? She's like, give me your sin. You're like, for sure. Take all you want, you know? Give me your stuff. Ah, I don't know. I don't know. So Grace said, well, you know, study the Bible on this. And, you know, when your wife is trying to get you, that's what she says. Um, study the Bible. You're like, oh, gosh, now i got to study the Bible. And so I'm a brand-new Christian. I read the Bible, and I realize in the Old Testament you gave 10%. That means a tithe. And then in addition, there's other feasts, festivals, offerings that were 25 to 27% of your total income was given to the Lord. I come to her, I'm like, it's, it's, that's a lot. She's like, yep. She's like, we need to give generously and trust the Lord. I was like, okay. 
how much do you want to give? She says, let's give 100 bucks a month. 100 bucks a month? Date night's 99 cents. That's a lot of dates, you know? And our rent is 200 Okay, so we got a $100 bill. So sitting in church with my new bride, the plate comes by, or the basket, I'm holding it. I got the $100 bill. I'm looking at her like, are you, are you sure we're doing this, right? We're doing that. I put it in. I'm like, you know, it's not too late. You know, I, I, I think if I let go, they're going to taser me if I take it back. So we're at that, we're, we're, we're nearing that point of no return. She's like, yes, give it, give it. And away it goes. And I had a heart funeral. And, uh, and I kid you not, that week I got up. And we had a little apartment. We, so I was in our living room slash dining room slash um, uh, kitchen slash study. It was one room about the size of a phone booth. And uh, I look, and under the door, somebody had slipped under the door a $100 bill. And I pick it up, and I go, Grace, she's like, yeah, that's what the Lord does. I was like, well, not for me. I grew up in the hood. You don't leave 100 bucks laying around. You know, like... <laughs> And she said, no, this is the Lord's way of teaching us to trust him, not with just our sin, but our stuff. I was like, well, that's amazing. And so the next month comes around. She's like, okay, let's give another hundred bucks. I was like, hey, I kind of feel like it went well. We should just quit. It's like a casino. I'm even. I'm leaving. You know, so we came out even. That's pretty good. You know, better than I was expecting. Let's go home now. She's like, no, no, we need to trust the Lord again. So we put a hundred bucks. I kid you not. That week, our pastor, wonderful, godly guy came up to me. He's like, Mark, it's weird. I, I was praying for you in grace this week. He said, I feel like the Lord told me to do something. I was like, okay. He pulls out his wallet. I kid you not. He pulled out a hundred dollar bill. And he said, the Lord said to give this to you. I said, that's amazing. Some of you ask, has it happened every week? Nope, just twice. Um, (laughs) But it was God's way of getting us into a rhythm and a habit because sometimes it's easy to trust God with your sin and not trust God with your stuff. And when it comes, and so Grace was right. She had the gift of faith and gift of giving, and I've learned from her and God's word to grow in faith and giving. And, and what we're doing is we're going through the Bible. We've established in John chapter 5 that the whole Bible is ultimately about Jesus. But there are the, themes, threads, there are paths and pathways, three of them, that lead to Jesus. So there are parts of the Bible that are primarily about your sin. And now Jesus comes to live without sin, die for your sin, rise to conquer sin and death. Some of the pathways to Jesus are suffering. As we suffer, we remember that Jesus suffered for us and he suffers with us and he grows our character to become more like his through our suffering. So sin, suffering, and stewardship. The other great theme of the Bible is stewardship. How our stuff is part of our relationship with God. How God is the owner and we are the manager. Jesus taught on stewardship about 25% of the time. And if a pastor were to teach on stewardship, finances, wealth, and the like, as much as Jesus, one sermon every month would be on this issue. Why do I tell you all of this? Because this is a text, a section of the scriptures, that is about stewardship. And it's a little boy set an example by managing his resources and giving them to Jesus. It's a great story. So we'll pick it up. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Just a quick historical antecedent. It gives the two names. There was a a historical sort of legal designation for the lake, and then there was what the locals called it. Okay? And so this just goes to show that the Bible is accurate, it's historical, it's factual, and when it says that places exist, it honors those places, and it's indeed true. Now this Sea of Galilee, I've been there, our family was on this sea some years ago, it is much larger than I was expecting. It feels kind of like you're on the ocean. I mean, it's a big body of water, the sea can really swell, it's, it's a large place. And a large crowd was following him. So Jesus' ministry is really taking off. It started off very small. Now it is growing quickly, very large, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus, thus far, he healed people and turned water into wine. Let me just tell you, if you can do those two things, you will have a lot of friends. Amen? What do you do? I make wine and heal people. We're hanging out. For sure, we're hanging out. Because I'm looking for both of those things 
pretty much every day. So there's a large crowd that is really excited about what Jesus can do. Not necessarily who Jesus is, but what Jesus can do. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. I've been there. It's a beautiful area, great topography. It's just picturesque and a glorious place to be. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. We'll revisit that. That gives us the historical setting. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, right? The Sea of Humanity is coming toward Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Story continues. He said to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Sometimes Jesus asks a question, and it's not because he's looking for an answer. It's because he wants us to search our hearts. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, six to eight months wages for a common worker. Worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little, just a a snack. If we're going to feed them a full meal, it's going to take a year's plus income. We're a poor little ministry. We don't have that in the bank. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? It's not going to make a big difference. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. Five thousand in number. That doesn't include the women and the children. So that might mean 15, 20, 25,000 people. This is a massive crowd that is gathered. A couple of things. First, I want to make note of, we'll look at Jesus, we'll look at Philip, we'll look at Andrew, we'll look at the boy. Jesus first. First thing I want to show you is that people are drawn to Jesus. People are interested in Jesus. You should invite your friends to church, and don't be shocked when they come. Uh, You should invite your friends to Give you prayer requests. Don't be shocked when they give you prayer requests. You should buy people the Bible and tell them to start maybe even in the Gospel of John. And don't be shocked if they start reading it. Sometimes we can think that there is great animosity and hostility toward Jesus, and sometimes there is. But oftentimes, people have a problem with church or they have a problem with Christianity, but there's still a curiosity about Christ. And so don't be shocked, right? Easter's coming. Invite your family. Invite your friends. Invite your neighbors. Invite your enemies. Wouldn't it be great if they got fixed, right? Invite everybody because everybody needs Jesus. We see here there is a large curiosity factor and interest factor toward Jesus. One thing I want to point out as well is that we should not attach a moral value to a ministry size. Okay? Jesus started with a couple of guys. We've seen him in John's gospel multi, uh, excuse me, minister to individuals. So he sits down with a guy named Nicodemus. He sits down with a Samaritan woman at a well. But here we see there are 10, 15, 20, 25,000 people. He now has a large ministry. Jesus had a small ministry and Jesus had a large ministry. Sometimes what we can do, we can ascribe a moral value to a ministry size. So sometimes like big ministries are bad, small ministries are good. No, no, small ministries are good, big ministries are bad. You know what? That's silly talk. We just want every ministry, every church to be healthy and to grow to whatever size God has apportioned in their DNA. Ministries are like kids. There's a DNA. They're going to get to a certain size. If they're healthy, they'll reach that maximum quotient that is designated for them. If they're not healthy, bad diet, illness, bad environment can restrict their growth. But we just want every ministry to be healthy. We want that for all the churches and ministries in the valley. And some people have asked, how big is the Trinity Church going to get? I don't know. Somebody asked recently, are we going to do multi-site? We're 18 months old in a diaper with a knock-knock. We're not ready to be parents. We're not ready to be parents, right? We're still in a stroller. So we'll see. I don't know what the Lord has for us. My whole goal is just love and focus on health. That's it. Same thing with my kids. I don't know how, you know, you have a kid. You don't know how big that kid's going to get. I think of ministries like I think of my own children. I don't say tall kids are good, short kids are bad. I would say short kids are good and tall kids are bad. I just want the kids to be healthy. I've got a daughter who's five foot two. I call her fun size. She's the perfect size because I can snuggle her and kiss her on the head. I think that's awesome. I've got two sons that are pushing about a foot taller than their sister. Right? And so they live up in where Paul calls the third heaven. And, uh, <laughs> and I have to look up to them. I want all my kids to be healthy and grow up to whatever genetic predisposition God has appointed for them. Same for same for ministries. 
Jesus here has gone from a small ministry to a big ministry, and it's all a good, healthy ministry. That's Jesus. So then Jesus sees this large crowd coming, and he is going to use this as a teachable moment for one of his disciples, a guy named Philip. Philip grew up and lived in the area, and so he knew it. Right? Some of you are new to the area. You can't find anything unless you plug it into your phone. Some of you have lived here for a long time. You know where everything is, and you know how everything works. Philip is a guy like that. So Jesus goes to him, and he tests him. He's like, okay, Philip, here's all these people. How are we going to feed them? Philip's like, we never got a Costco. I don't know where to go. I don't know where we're going to get this food. There are no resources. And then Philip starts to run the numbers. How many of you are the numbers people? You're like, we need projections. We need cash flow. We need expenses. We need margins. Spreadsheets, spreadsheets, Excel, Excel. How many of you are those people? And you're very frustrated right now because I haven't given you any points in the sermon. You're like, where's the points? You're those people, right? You like to take notes. You're very copious. You like to project, forecast, profit and loss. I'm saying all your happy words. Is that you? That's Philip. He's running. He's like, okay, look, head count, uh, 15, 20,000. How much is, okay, not, cheap sandwich, cheap, cheap, cheap sandwich, cheap, 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 <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. Okay, okay, well, we'll give them each a, a quarter. Uh, still, it's going to take six to eight months wages. What's in the account? We don't have it. We don't, Judas is like, yeah, we, we don't have it. I don't know where it went. And, uh, <laughs> accounting error. And, uh, so he goes to Jesus, he's like, the numbers don't work. We can't do this ministry. Is it a problem to forecast, budget, and project, yes or no? No. And if your family needs a budget, your business needs a budget, our church needs a budget, you, somebody's got to run the numbers, otherwise you're doing prison ministry from the inside, which is not the ideal way to do prison ministry. That's funny, you'll get it on the way home. Nonetheless, what happens is, he runs the numbers without God. He doesn't ask Jesus. Jesus, here's what we've got in the natural. What have you got in the supernatural? He could have went to Jesus and said, I saw you turn water into wine. Do you do bread? (laughs) Do you do bread? In the Old Testament, when God's people were sojourning in the wilderness for 40 years during the Exodus, every morning God gave them what? Manna. Hey, Jesus, you want to do that again? That'd be awesome. He, he, He runs the numbers, but he doesn't ask the Lord. Some of you are that way. You, you run the numbers and you say no, and you haven't asked the Lord if he is going to add provision to your vision. Right? Philip has a vision to feed these people, but he doesn't trust God for the provision for the vision. I don't want you to be reckless. I don't want you to say, Pastor Mark said, put it on credit card, trust the Lord. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying be, be, be wise, be judicial, be prudent, but you've got to ask the Lord, Lord, do you want to make any adjustments or additions to our numbers? So then Andrew steps up, and Andrew brings two things to Jesus, resources and a person. Okay? This is a ministry that you and I can all do. He brings resources to Jesus and a person to Jesus. Who's the person that he brings? Little boy. What's the little boy got? resources. Five barley loaves, two fish. He was probably a poor boy, a peasant boy. We were talking about it and Grace is like, where's his mom? I don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll ask him. Uh, like, How did this work? Barley was the food for the poor. So this is not an awesome lunch. This is, this is a very minimal sustenance. And fish thinks sardines, very basic, very basic. So this is a minimal lunch. Here's what you and I can do. We can bring resources and people to Jesus. And Andrew's like, I don't know. I can't fix it, but here's what I got. I got a kid and a, you know, a lunchable. So I'll take the kid and the lunchable, bring them to Jesus and see what Jesus wants to do with the kid and his lunchable. If you bring somebody to Jesus, you're following in the ministry of Andrew. If you bring a resource to Jesus, you're following in the ministry example of Andrew. And then there's the little boy. And here's what I love about the little boy. He has a childlike faith. Jesus tells us not to have a childish faith. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, when we become adults, we've got to put childish ways behind us. Childish is immature, irresponsible. It's foolishness. That's childish. Jesus commends not childish faith, but childlike faith. How many of you, you realize that sometimes for kids... Their ability to trust God is sometimes a lot greater than ours. You read the, I remember reading the Bible to the kids, and Jesus would do a miracle. They'd be like, that's awesome! They actually believed it happened. I went to college. We didn't start there. 
I'm reading Hume, and I don't believe that the supernatural paranormal is possible because we're in a closed deistic universe. I'm like, oh, kids are so much better to read the Bible with. They're like, that's awesome, right? They just, they, they can trust that God can do. How many of you have a kid where they pray and they actually think God is going to hear and answer prayer? And as an adult, you're all up in your head. I'm not sure. I don't know. They're like, let's just ask. I've learned a lot about faith through my kids. Childlike faith, innocence, simplicity, humility. There's something beautiful about a childlike faith. This little boy, he's got a childlike faith. He looks at the crowd and he doesn't think five loaves and two sardines ain't going to get the job done. His thought is, I'll give it to Jesus and then we'll see what he wants to do with it. That's faith. That's faith. That's faith. My question is, how have you really seen Jesus take what you give and multiply it? See, that's the miracle of multiplication. I don't want to give the whole story away. We'll turn the page in just a moment. But that's what childlike faith allows. It allows us to participate in Jesus' ministry of multiplication. And so this is all happening during a time that is called the Passover. And it is all pointing back to the Old Testament. I'll give you it. So Genesis, God raises up a guy named Abraham. Through him comes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They are God's people and family. In addition, there is a guy named Joseph. We studied him together some months ago at the end of Genesis. What happens is famine hits and God's people are on the brink of starving to death. They don't have bread to eat. So what happens, God raises up Joseph, one of his people, to rule and reign over a nearby nation called Egypt. They, during their years of plenty, stored their grain because of a prophetic vision that God had given Joseph. So that when the famine hit, the Egyptians had plenty. They had an abundance of grain so that people would not starve to death. So God's people ended up relocating from the promised land to Egypt. And there they were provided for and they literally had bread to eat. That small family of 60 some people over the course of 440 years grew to be a nation of a few million. God's ministry of multiplication. He wants to multiply your family, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. This nation of a few million people is now in Egypt. They're being ruled over by a godless man who thinks he's God named Pharaoh. He is oppressing and repressing them. He is enslaving them. He is using and abusing them. He is killing and harming them. And what God does, he raises up a man named Moses to be their deliverer. He supernaturally takes down this false king and kingdom. He liberates them to walk toward their home that he had appointed for them. And along the way, during their wilderness wandering for 40 years, every day they were going to starve to death unless God showed up and fed them manna. And every day God would provide manna, bread. And it, it's interesting because if you, if you didn't have faith in God's provision, you would take the manna and you would try and store some for tomorrow. And what would happen? It would spoil. The point is, yesterday's faith doesn't work for today. Today requires new faith. So God provided yesterday manna The manna spoils tomorrow morning. We need to trust God again. We need to have faith in God again. Okay? And so it is you need to trust God every day for your provision. This is why the Lord Jesus comes along and tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. So all of this is happening during the season of Passover, the celebration of the Exodus, and God's provision for his people in the wilderness, literally giving them bread. Because Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus brings the greater deliverance, not just from the kingdom of Egypt, but from hell. He conquers not just a ruler like Pharaoh, but he conquers the most evil ruler of all, the devil. 
And as God's people are on their pilgrimage to their eternal home, we're wandering through this world that is a wilderness. It is showing that Jesus is able to provide our daily bread, just as God did for those who were in the wilderness. So all of this is happening, showing that everything in the Old Testament was foreshadowing the coming and fulfillment of Jesus. The story continues. And in the next section, we read this, that Jesus cares about physical and spiritual needs. Jesus cares about physical and spiritual needs. Next slide, please. Uh, You are two parts. You are a material, physical, external being in a body. You are an immaterial, invisible, spiritual person with a soul. God made both parts of you. God loves both parts of you. God needs to provide for both parts of you. Some of you will ask God for spiritual things, but not physical things, practical things. God is spiritual and God is practical. Amen? Amen? So we read this. Jesus then took the loaves, five barley loaves from a poor kid, and when he had given thanks... He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, how much? As much as they wanted. All you can eat buffet, Jesus picks up the tab. This is a picture of the kingdom. And when they had eaten their fill, everybody stuffed. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. There's leftovers. That nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up. Filled 12 baskets. I don't know about this, but maybe there was a little take-home bag for each disciple. To remind them, Jesus meets needs. Jesus sometimes supersedes needs. I was thinking about it too. We're going to get into this issue of entitlement and ingratitude. Wouldn't it be curious if Judas Iscariot watched all of this and took an abundant surplus home while he is stealing from Jesus for three years? So that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And they're quoting and echoing Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, where Moses says, I'm a prophet, but a greater prophet is coming, and he is going to bring the word of the Lord. And we already saw in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is God's word to the world. He is the capital P prophet. He is what God has to say to everyone everywhere. So here is the story. 5,000 men plus women and children. And I want to talk about stewardship and God meeting practical and also spiritual needs. And I've got, so for you note takers, I have seven things for you. You're welcome. They're like, yay, we have points. Okay, you're welcome. First one, be thankful for what you have. Be thankful for what you have. Question, this meal they were eating, was it an amazing meal? It was simple. In our culture, this would be like, they had a peanut butter sandwich. Right? It was very simple. It was very humble. This was, this was the meal of the poor. What does Jesus do? Jesus took the loaves and he gave. He sang grace. Do you know why Christians say grace before the meal? Because Jesus did. And it is thanking God for his provision. Are you thankful for what you have? This is the great anecdote to our our, our sense of entitlement. Here's my question for you. How much money is enough? How much sex is enough? How much food is enough? How much alcohol is enough? How many dollars are enough? How many square feet is enough? How many horsepower is enough? Some of you say, well, as soon as I get that, I will be satisfied. If you have an entitlement mentality, you will never have an attitude of gratitude. That it is not the stuff, but it is the soul that is the problem. If you are a person that is discontented with what God provides you will even be incapable of rejoicing in God's provision for others. Some of you have family and friends like this. You're like, well, I got a new promotion at work, or you know, we're able to pay off our credit card debt, or we've saved up money for a down payment on our home. But there are family and friends, we can't even tell them because they'll be angry and jealous and mad and hurt and bitter and frustrated because we have what they want. Coveting is sinning, and it 
it is caused and motivated by a discontentedness. The way we war against this evil is thankfulness. Saying, Lord, thank you for what you have given me. Jesus demonstrates thankfulness. Now, let me say this. Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He could have had a much greater meal. But he's thankful for what he has. And he is modeling for others thankfulness for what they have. And this is why God's people historically, we pray before every meal. Because we realize that whatever it is that we are eating, it is something that God has provided. How many of you don't understand that when you're not grateful, what you are telling God is, I do not appreciate what you have given. I feel like I should have gotten better. If you're raising a child, you know what this attitude feels like. You give and they're ungrateful. God is a father. We are his kids and he wants his kids to be grateful. To be grateful. Are you thankful? Do you practice thankfulness? Are you grateful for what you have? It's not about getting more. It's about enjoying more what God has already given. Number two, God does see and care for your spiritual and your physical needs. So Jesus has come. He's going to live without sin, die on the cross, rise from the dead, meet their spiritual needs of forgiveness of sin and relationship with God. And along the way, he also provides for physical needs. If you're sick, is it okay to pray for healing? Yeah, that's a physical need. If you just lost your job, is it okay to pray for a job? Yeah. I had a man come up to me literally after the first service. He, he's got five daughters and he just lost his job and he's got a job opportunity here. So he's like, this was a good text for me. I'm trying to figure out what God's provision is for my family because I need a job. Now we need to move and we need to get a place to live. And I got five little girls and I got a great wife and we're just asking God to meet some very practical needs. Is that okay? For sure that's okay. Yeah, that family needs a place to live and they need food to eat and and some provision for life. Some of you think that God's only concern is about the spiritual. Some of it's very practical. So let me say this. By meeting practical needs, that's ministry in a way that we love people. So if you feed somebody, you house somebody, you give them a car, lend them a car, you give a gift, you help meet a need, you're ministering to the whole person. That does bless their soul by also providing for their physical needs and their practical needs. I love that Jesus does that. Some of you, you need to be very comfortable in asking Jesus to meet some very practical physical needs. It doesn't mean that he has to say yes right now. But we see from this example that he can meet visible practical needs. And sometimes he doesn't mind doing so. Third thing. God can multiply what you give. God can multiply what you give. So here's this little boy. He's got five barley loaves and two fish, and there's a stadium full of people. How is this going to make any difference at all? And sometimes we think, you know what? I'm not going to give because the need is so great, I can't meet it. I'm not going to serve because the need is so great, I cannot meet it. Our relationship is so broken, I'm going to stop trying because there is not the emotional energy to reconcile this relationship. Whatever the case may be, we can come up with lots of reasons why our resources are insufficient. Therefore, to give them, it is a waste of time. And Jesus would say, no, give to me and I will multiply for you. Sometimes you give money and God multiplies it. Sometimes you give energy and God multiplies it. Sometimes you give love and relationship and God multiplies it. Ours is a God who likes to multiply, but he invites this boy to give what he has so that boy can participate. Let me ask you this. Um, how many of you have seen God multiply things in your life supernaturally? You can't even account for it. You're like, I don't know what it, it was just God. That is our story from day one. We give a little and God does a lot. I, I don't understand how that works. I feel every day like the little boy. Like, hey, Jesus, I taught the Bible, and things happened, and Jesus, you know, we showed up, and then wonderful people showed up, and Jesus, we gave, and then other people gave, and it's just constant multiplication, and God is very generous in that way. And some of you would say, well, I can't make the difference, and Jesus says, for sure you can't. Give it to me, and then see what I do with it. I'm so glad that this little boy, can you imagine how exciting it was for this little boy to see what happened? That had to be crazy. Like, oh, we're doing it again. Hey, do it again. Hey, do it again. Do it again. That's awesome. This kid's got to be excited. 
Because he gets to see God multiply what he gives. Right? But if he wouldn't have given, he wouldn't have seen the multiplication. He wouldn't have participated in the miracle. Number four, God does big things with little things. Samson kills a thousand men with a jawbone. David takes down Goliath with a couple of little rocks. God comes into human history through a little teenage girl. Did Jesus grow up in a big town or a little town? Little town. Did his family have big income or little income? Little income. Jesus comes from little and he's big and God does little things with big things. Some of you feel that way. You feel, you know, I'm little. I make a little money, I make a little impact, I have a little ability, you know, I'm just little. God's like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. If you're little and available, I can multiply it. Sometimes the people that have more are more arrogant and they're less available. This little boy, he's poor and he's little. He's a little boy with a little lunch and God can do big things with little things. Amen? This is why I want you to encourage even your children to think big And to plan big, even when they're little. And I love the fact that God uses a little boy. So, here's the big idea. Point number five, seek to be a steward. I told you the three major pathways that lead to Jesus in the Bible. Sin, suffering, stewardship. There are three basic perspectives on your stuff. Okay, One is, what's mine is mine. That's selfishness. One is... What's yours is mine. That's stealing. We'll get into each of these. Even if we vote for them to steal for us, it's still stealing. Just throwing it out there. What's what's mine is mine, selfish. What's yours is mine, stealing. What's mine is his, stewarding. Let me unpack each of these. So what's mine is mine. It's really interesting. Our money says, in God we trust. It should say, in this God called mammon do we truly trust. What's mine is mine. That is, that is selfishness. I don't share. I don't give. I don't share. I don't give. I'll give you an example of a guy I know who's divorced, and I'll tell you why. His wife made the babies. He made the money. So here's what he told his wife. It's my money. Now, she was kind. What she didn't say was, well, then they're my babies. What she said was, no, I make the babies, but there are babies. He said, I make the money, but it's my money. He was very stingy. He was very, he was very controlling. Uh, he was very domineering. And, uh, and as a result, he really broke the spirit of his wife and his kids. Um, and eventually, the marriage fell apart. Because not only was he not a giver, he was not a forgiver. Givers are forgivers. So not only did he keep a record of all of his money, he kept a record of all of his wife's failures. And the Bible says that love does not keep a record of wrong. If you can give your money, you can give your time. If you give your money, you can give your heart. If you give your money, you can give your words. If you give your money, you can give yourself. He was not a giver and he was not a forgiver. And as a result, it destroyed his relationship. Um, I've got two lovely daughters, and you know, when the time comes that some man wants to marry them, one of my questions will be, what does your giving look like? You know why? If you can't give to Jesus, how are you going to give to my girl? If you can't be generous toward the God who made you and saved you, how can you be generous toward the daughter that I am going to entrust to you? If if you cannot give gifts, how can I give you my greatest gift? If I can get people to be generous, it unlocks their whole life. They can give and they can forgive. And some of you, I can just sense it. You're like, Pastor Mark, why are you talking about my money? That's the problem. That's the problem. Okay. So what's mine is mine. Selfish. Don't give. The other perspective, what's yours is mine. So I'm always trying to figure out how do I get more of what's, what's yours should be mine. How can I get it? How can I take it? How can I steal it? How can I rig the deal so it's a win-lose game and I always win? This leads to stealing. How many of you are in management? You own a company. You manage a company. You're in accounting. 
Business leaders will tell you that the main problem with theft from a company is not the customers who walk in the front door and steal. It is the employees who walk in the back door and steal. The company owes me more. I deserve more. I should have more. I should get more. Therefore, I will take what I feel I have coming to me. And this can even include time. I'm not working. I'm fudging my hours. I'm misbilling. I'm not doing a good job while I'm on the job because I am owed more and they are going to pay. And sometimes this even works itself out politically with an entitlement mentality. You owe me. Ah, no. No. No, that's not the way this works. This leads to thinking that we should be getting and not giving. So the third perspective is stewarding. What's mine is? It's God's. How many of you are an asset manager? You oversee somebody's real estate portfolio, their retirement account, their investment account. You are not the owner. You are the manager. A steward is one who says, I am not the owner. I am the manager. God is the owner. Right. How many of you with your retirement account, if you walked into your broker, or maybe you've got a real estate portfolio and you've got some firm that manages your rentals, you walked into their office and you told them, okay, here's exactly what I want you to do. You came back a year later and they didn't do that and they bankrupted you. You say, why did you do that? You say, well, since it was in, I felt it was mine. Like, I don't feel the same way. You were a manager, not an owner. A manager executes the decisions of the owner. A manager does not make the decisions of the owner. Here's what I want you to know. Everything you are and have belongs ultimately to God. It does. James says every good and perfect gift that we have comes from the Father above. And so then it is not how will I allocate my resources, Lord Jesus, how do you want me to allocate your resources? That's stewarding. That's stewarding. Um... When you realize this, you realize that God is generous because everything you have is a gift. This is why we say grace before meals. This is why God's people should practice an attitude of gratitude. So let me ask you this. Does the little boy have the attitude of a steward? Totally. Here's what I have. It belongs to Jesus. I'm going to give it to him so that he gets to do what he wants with it. That's a steward. Question. Does Jesus, in this narrative, have the disposition of a steward? Yes. Um, Here's what he says. Jesus, hear me in this. Gather up the leftover fragments that how much will be lost? Nothing. Is this good bread? No. Do they have enough bread? Yes. If they run out, can Jesus make more bread? Yes. Does Jesus waste any bread? No. Moral of the story, don't waste Jesus' bread. We even use that language for money, don't we? It's bread. Don't waste Jesus' bread. Jesus is a good steward. Jesus is overseeing all of the assets that are available, and he is maximizing each of those, not wasting When we think that we are the owner, we have no problems wasting. When he is the owner, we are the manager. We need to make every effort to ensure that we're not wasting. So it convicted me this week. I started thinking about it. Are there things in our budget as a family that are not necessary that we could cut? And the answer is yes. There's some very simple things. That How many of you set up an automatic payment for something? And automatic payment is the Greek word for demon. And next thing you know, you're like, "What? we don't even use that, but we're still paying for that. Okay? And it's, it's being a good steward and not wasting. Not wasting. And I love that Jesus does that. And if Jesus isn't going to waste bread, breadcrumbs, bread crust, then we need to have a similar attitude with our own resources. Or am I allocating them well? And there's a context in the Bible where Jesus says, He who is trustworthy with little can be entrusted with much. The context is finances. And I'm not saying that you're going to get rich if you're a good steward, but I just know if you're a portfolio asset manager for someone and you do a really good job, you're going to get more business. And the person who's a really bad manager and their accounts do very poorly, they don't get as many people trusting them. God is looking for portfolio managers and asset managers. 
God owns everything. He's like, okay, I'm going to give to them. They do a good job. I'll give to them. They do a good job. They need some work. I'm still going to help them, but man, they need to make some adjustments. Otherwise, I can't put more in that account because it's not being well managed. Okay. This is why I don't like it when people will be like, rich people are bad. Some people that I know that are very affluent, they started very poor, but they were very good stewards. And I think God has entrusted to them a lot of resources because they're very generous and they're good at managing God's portfolio. Okay, So we want to think biblically, not just politically or culturally. Point number six, start generosity young. Here's a little boy. I'm asking, where were the men? <laughs> like, how come a guy didn't step up and be like, I got, I got a sandwich? Right? This little boy, he is the one that has this generosity mindset. Start them young. How many of you have kids? How many of you have grandkids? Right? Here's the first word that a child learns. Mine. That's the first word. It's amazing. That's their first word. Kids fight over everything. Parents walk in the room. The first question we ask is, who had it first? Which isn't always the best question. I know one kid, literally, he was a little... So anyways, the Holy Spirit showed up. It was going to be funny, but we'll just move along. So um, I walked into a playroom, and this kid got there first and pushed all the toys in the corner and stood in front of the toys. All the other kids walk, and he's like, I, I had it first. You have everything, right? If a parent walks in and asks, well, who had it first? Well, Johnny did. He got here first, loaded his gun, put it all in the corner, and, you know, the rest of us were sort of in a hostage negotiation for the slinky dinky. You know, we're in a situation here. The question is, who's acting godly? Who's being generous? Who's sharing? Who has the heart of Jesus? Right? Who has the heart of Jesus? And it can start very young. And sometimes we think, oh, it's a phase they'll outgrow. Not necessarily. Some of you had selfish little kids that became selfish teenagers that now are selfish adults. And they do not have a thankfulness and they do not have a generosity. I don't know if he learned this from his parents. I don't know if this was just in his heart as a little boy and this was his disposition. We were talking about it at dinner last night at our house and Grace asked uh, you know, where's his mom? I'm like, that's a good question. Uh, the kid said, did he need five loaves? Hmm, I don't know. These are all questions we get to heaven. I'm going to ask. Maybe his parents packed a bigger lunch so that he could share because they were teaching him to be generous. I don't know. If you can start to teach the kids little to look for visible need, to meet visible need, and to be generous, you'll start to cultivate in them the heart of Jesus. And so here, here's my line with the Driscoll kids. Um, I spoil my kids. And, and I won't apologize for it. My line to the kids has always been, kids can repeat after me, I don't mind spoiling you as long as you don't act spoiled. You can be spoiled, don't act spoiled. So people are like, you spoil your kids. You're welcome. Yeah, what do you want me to do? You know, oh, you're hungry. Tough. I'm not a generous dad. You know? <laughs> Wait till heaven when the other dad shows up. He's real, he's real generous. No. I want to be generous to my family so that my family can be generous. Okay? Sometimes when you're generous, you can breed entitlement. That's not what I'm talking about. Sometimes when you're generous, you can breed codependency or irresponsibility. I'm not talking about that. I want to be generous toward the kids so they can be generous. So Grace has a spiritual gift of giving, and our family has joined in her gift. We like to give. Um, give you a couple of stories. Um, our young, with the younger kids, I give them cash. And I say, put it in your phone case so that if you're out with your friends and they don't have money or they can't pay for lunch or they have a need, you can have cash and meet the visible need so that they can have lunch or do whatever you guys are doing for fun. Look for the visible need and meet the visible need. Okay. If I can do that for my little boys, they're going to be good dads someday. Because they'll be accustomed to looking for needs and meeting them. Um, If I can do that with my daughters, they're going to grow up and they're going to be good moms. Oh, you have a need. Mom's here. Love you. Here to meet the need. Um, Our youngest son, he he has a gift of giving. He loves to give. And he he always carries a pretty good wad of money on him walking around money and and uh 
And when he first went to his new school here in the Valley a couple of years ago, elementary school, we got a call from the teacher, an email from the teacher said, uh, your son carries a lot of money. Yeah, he does. And uh, <laughs> walking around money. And every time there's a kid in the classroom that forgets their lunch money, he buys them lunch. And I asked my little buddy, I said, he said, yeah, I keep money in my pocket. I keep money in my desk. I keep money in my phone. And I'm just looking if anybody's got a need. I'm picking up the tab. Okay? We don't do prearranged marriage, but that's my son, you know? And, uh, but I love, I love that his heart is, who can I bless today? How can I help? Okay? That's not how this world works. But that's how the kingdom of God works. And as early as we are able to get the children to have a heart of stewardship and generosity, I'll give you another one. We, uh, it, was, uh, it just comes to mind. Um, we were at a baseball, a spring training baseball game here recently. And uh, one of the umpires is a, is a friend and got us tickets. And he said, uh, waves at us, hey, come down here, come down here. So, you know, go down to the third baseline and, he takes a ball, Major League Baseball, game used, tosses it to me. I hand it to my son, who hands it to his friend. Okay? That's, that's what I'm talking about. Yay, thank you. And I get to share it. So his little buddy got the ball. I kid you not, the next day, he goes to a baseball game and catches a foul ball. <laughs> Because he's just that kid, right? And so God even gave him a baseball the next day. Am I saying, the moral of the story is, you know, give it away and God will give it to you. That's not what I'm saying. But with this little boy, that is what happened. He gave the lunch away. Did he still get to eat lunch? Yes. Yes. And God blessed everyone. As early as possible, teaching your children to be stewards and generous. Uh, Point number seven on this point. Giving is a blessing. In Acts chapter 20, I wrote it down, verse 35, the Apostle Paul quotes a line from Jesus that's not in any of the four Gospels. He said, you remember the Lord Jesus? He told us, it is more blessed to blank than blank. It is more blessed to give than receive. There is a bad teaching that says, give to get. If you give God a hundred bucks in faith, he'll give you a thousand dollars in faith. I don't believe that. I don't believe that we give to get a blessing. I believe that giving is the blessing. It is a blessing. It's an internal blessing. How many of you, one of the greatest memories of your life is where you got to help somebody and bless them. And it didn't come back to you, but it did bless you. I'm so glad I got to meet that need. I'm so glad I got to help. I'm so glad I got to unburden. I'm so glad I got to serve. I'm so glad I got to participate. That was awesome. This is why even non-Christians will give. Because they were made in the image and likeness of God. And our God is a giver. And there's something in us that is just made to give. We don't give to get a blessing. Giving is a blessing. So let me field test this for you. How many of you, Christmas comes, your favorite thing is opening your gifts or watching someone else open the gift you got them? Right? How many of you are grandparents? You're not the grandparent who's like, where are my presents? I was hoping for more. (laughs) Could you kids just hurry up? I got stuff I want to open. I want to see what I got. Johnny, hustle. Grandpa's got to open his boxes. Gosh. Right, if that's you, punch yourself in the head, right? You, you need a lot of work. No, no, a grandparent at Christmas is, yeah, I'll get to my gifts when? Later, maybe. You know what? I want to see the kids open their present. I want to see them play with their present. I want, yeah, 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 I got, to, I got to give to you. God's heart is like that. God doesn't give to use you, abuse you, manipulate you. God gives to you to bless you, and it blesses him. Our God is a giver. Here's here's what the Bible says. For God so loved the world, we looked at this in John already, for God so loved the world that he Gave. gave. 
Giving is one way of loving. Giving is one way of loving. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave us his best. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What he's saying is, the father gives the son as a gift. And that gift is an eternal gift. And it's relational. And God gives so that we can have relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, Giving is a blessing. Giving is a blessing. Giving is a blessing. And then what happens here, last slide please. Everybody gets excited and they're ready to elect Jesus. (laughs) Right? But Jesus is his own king. John 6, 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and and take him away by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Here's what happened. They're like, we like Jesus. Let's get Jesus on our team. Jesus is like, I'm not on your team. I got my own team. I don't join your team. You don't join my team. I don't run for office in your kingdom. I got my own kingdom that's over every kingdom. Here's what I want you to see. It always comes down to your cause or your Christ. You young millennials, you cause activistic oriented do-gooders change the world. Folk, I love you. God bless you. And you're going to read this and say, see, we need to feed the poor. And I will say the poor need to be fed. But you cannot use Christ for your cause. Christ must be your cause. And what's happening over and over and over is people get really excited about their cause. Social, moral, political cause. And then they realize if we could just get Jesus on our team, that would be some serious rocket fuel for our cause. So Jesus gets hooked into everything. Literally, like two people with completely diametrically opposed political agendas will run, waving the Team Jesus flag. You're like, I'm so confused, I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. They come to use Christ for their cause. Jesus feeds people. We like to feed people. Let's use Christ for our cause. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus is demonstrating, I'm not opposed to your cause. Does Jesus feed people? Yeah. But Christ is more important than your cause. And Christ, if you worship Christ, if you serve Christ, if you follow Christ, you will have causes. You'll have moral, social, political things that need to change so that we can live kingdom down. Instead of culture up, there needs to be change. But you can be so devoted to your cause that you really care less about Christ. And all of a sudden, you're just using Christ for your cause. And that's what was happening here. They weren't saying, we want forgiveness of sin. We want eternal life. We want relationship. What they said was, he can make our cause come true. And Jesus said, I am not going to get behind your cause. I have come for the cause of being my own king, establishing my own kingdom, and saving you from all of your needs, not just your physical needs. I tell you this because I love you. And some of you get so excited about something But you need to be most excited about someone. Okay? They were not excited about who Jesus was. They were excited about what Jesus gives. So they were using Jesus, not worshiping Jesus. That was the problem. Now, let me say this. This theme of eating. There are many ways to read the storyline of the Bible. Um, One is through meals. And... It's interesting because meals are, it's the way that cross-culturally we build relationship and friendship. Right? So if you're a single guy, you meet a really nice girl, what do you do? Do you want to go out to eat? And then you sit down, you look at each other. And if you didn't know this, guys, write it down. Right? Uh, Sit down, look at each other, and have a conversation and build a relationship over the breaking of bread. Eating is where relationships are formed and they're deepened. And so I'll close with this. Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, all the problems started. Adam and Eve, they sat down and they had a meal with Satan. That's where all the problem began. They invited Satan to their dinner table. They invited Satan to, to eat with them. They were inviting Satan into a relationship. Sin is 
action. But oftentimes before action, it's relationship that we should not be in. Some of you should not be dating those people. Some of you should not be in business with those people. Some of you should not be roommates with those people. You're not supposed to be in relationship with them. Adam and Eve were not to be in relationship with Satan. God had provided for them richly and generously. He said, you can eat of anything in all of creation, with one exception, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our God is a grace God with a law tree. He's not a law God with a grace tree. They could eat anything they wanted. They ate with the one being they were not supposed to eat with. They ate the one thing they were not supposed to eat. And then sin enters the world. God's people are starving, literally, as they're sojourning in the wilderness for 40 years during the Exodus and Passover, the time frame of John 6. Every day, God provides their daily bread to sustain them. Some of you know exactly what this feels like. You are asking God for a job, you're asking God for groceries, and you are wondering how tomorrow will get taken care of. And we pray for God's provision and protection over you and your family. And it is very reasonable to bring those practical, physical needs of employment or housing or food to the Lord, most assuredly. Jesus then comes and he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the fulfillment of the provision of manna. I am the gracious provision of the Father for you. I've come to meet your spiritual and your physical needs. In preparation for his execution, Jesus sits down at the Last Supper, which is a Passover meal. He sits down with his disciples to eat that meal, and he breaks with thousands of years of history, and he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you, I'm paraphrasing. And he's saying that all of the meals with bread and wine that have been eaten to that point were preparing for his coming. That his body would be broken, that his blood would be shed, that he would die in our place for our sins as God's gracious, generous provision so that we could have relationship with him. After Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the grave, he has a meal. One of the first things that the Lord Jesus does, he has a meal with his followers. He then ascends 40 days later into heaven and the early Christians start partaking of something called the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, or Communion. It's to remember we are to eat with Jesus together. We're to invite Jesus into our relationships. We're to invite Jesus into our homes. We are to invite Jesus into our budget. That everything is to be done in relationship with Jesus. And we as a church practice communion every week. Some have asked why. I believe it is because every week we need to be reminded that Jesus is our provider and Jesus is our provision. I believe that we can easily forget our tremendous and continual need for Jesus. That physically and spiritually we need bread daily. Until ultimately... In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, Genesis is the first book. Revelation is the last book. History ends with a meal. It's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. Got to officiate a beautiful wedding yesterday, and everybody was in a great mood and celebrating and and enjoying one another. And I thought, okay, this is what the kingdom of God will be like. The kingdom of God is an eternal meal hosted by Jesus, where he picks up the tab for everyone. And it's like a great homecoming of God's people. And friends, your spiritual needs will be met. All your sin will be forgiven. All of your brokenness will be healed. All of your longings will be satisfied. All of your questions will be answered. And all of your fears will be removed. Furthermore, all of your physical needs will be met. Those of you who are injured, you'll be healthy. Those of you who are incapable of living a full life because of your disability, you'll experience full and total healing in the resurrected body that Jesus gives you. And we're going to sit down together. We're going to eat together. We're going to drink together. We're going to celebrate together forever in the presence of Jesus. Amen? And so we want to live kingdom down, not culture up. We want to be good stewards of what Jesus gives. We want to be generous, helping meet the needs of others. We want Christ to be our cause. And we want to enjoy life together, asking him to give us our daily bread. So what we're going to do now, we're going to take communion.
If you're a Christian, you partake. Remember Jesus' provision for you. And as the band comes forward, I want you to prepare your hearts to partake of communion. Um, I want you to remember Jesus' provision through his broken body and his shed blood. As you eat, I want you to realize you are inviting Jesus into all of your life and to meet all of your needs. And I'll pray. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to come together as your people in your presence. Father God, we thank you that your heart is a heart of generosity, that you are a giver, not a taker, that you are a burden lifter, not a burden giver, that you are a need meter. And Lord God, I pray for these dear people right now. Lord, some of them, they have deep spiritual needs that the Lord Jesus needs to come and meet through the Holy Spirit right now. Some people here, Lord God, they need to know that they're forgiven by you. They need to know that they are loved by you. They need to know that you want a relationship with them and you want to eat with them. You want to be in their life and you want to be in their home. Lord God, some of us, we are here and we're in the position of the little boy. You've given us some resources and as we give, we share in your joy. Please multiply our efforts. Please multiply our giving. Please multiply our loving and doing and serving. Please multiply it so that a multitude can be nourished and fed and given life and we can share in your joy. And Father God, as we come to communion, remember that you so love the world that you gave your only son. And so, Lord Jesus, we receive you. And as we partake of the elements that show us who you are and what you do, please prepare our hearts and minds for that eternal homecoming feast. And along the way, like the Israelites in the desert, we ask for our daily bread in Jesus' good name. Amen.